This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm the Vice President for Scientific Affairs for Bright Focus. So, Happy New Year, and thanks for joining us for the first chat of the year 2016. And as the uh, with the with the new year, we're trying something new. We're going to dedicate the entire chat to answering questions that you've submitted, both for this chat as well as some of the questions that were submitted during previous chats that uh, we weren't able to get to on the call. But of course, you, you can still submit questions during today's call, and I'll be providing that information shortly and repeating, repeating it throughout the call. But with that, I'd like to welcome our featured speaker to the call today. We have Dr. Adam Winnick, who's an MD-PhD at the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. So he's active in research as well as patient care there. And before we get into the call, I'd like to mention that if you do have that question that you're burning to ask Dr. Winnick, please press star three to submit your question to an operator. And if for some reason you're disconnected from the call, the number to call back in is 877-229-8493. That's 877-229-8493. And you'll need to punch in an ID code. That's 112-435. Again, that's 112-435. So Dr. Winnick, welcome to the chat. We're so glad you agreed to join us for the topic and grateful for the friendship of you and your Colleagues, why don't you say a little bit about what you do in your professional life, and uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll take it from there. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for having me, Guy. Um, I am a assistant professor of ophthalmology, and um, primarily uh, see patients in the clinic, but I do have some uh, research time. So I see patients with any retinal disorder, um, but one of the most common conditions is age-related macular degeneration, just uh, because as, as our population is getting older, um, we do see more and more age-related diseases such as this. Um, we do both myself and my colleagues are doing some exciting research at Johns Hopkins and kind of later stages of research with, with medications that are almost ready to uh, be in clinical use as well as to the really early stages of understanding why macular degeneration happens. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We certainly appreciate everything you're doing for the community and, and participating on our call today. So the the challenge ahead of us is we have this we have this chat every month and we have them on a specific topic usually, and we always collect some extra questions that are either not. You know, there are important questions, but not quite on the topic uh, of the of the chat of that month. So we have a surplus of questions that we want to address today, as well as the the people who are going to be calling in and asking questions that are new. But let's get right into it and want to ask. Let's let's do a little bit of background. So so in your view, what defines AMD? And with that background, the first question we have is Sue from Michigan asking, "Is it hereditary?" Right. So I, you know, I think the most important thing in the beginning, and I do this with any patient of mine that, that comes in either with AMD or a, a suspected diagnosis of this, is to just understand the terminology, because I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. So a the macula, first of all, is not a specific disease. There are a number of conditions such as epiretinal membrane and macular hole that affect the macula, um, but they're not this condition 
age-related macular degeneration, which is often shorted, shortened to macular degeneration. There are other conditions that can be thought of as a macular degeneration in in a, a generic sense. Um, so what I consider age-related macular degeneration is a condition that's characterized by the buildup of material called drusen underneath the retina. And we, we think of these as a byproduct of normal vision. And if you look at anyone over the age 40, um, we see a couple of these little um, deposits under the retina. Um, when more of them or larger ones accumulate than a certain amount, that's when we call it this condition, age-related macular degeneration. So anyone under 50 might have a problem with a macula, but it's not this specific condition. And if these deposits under the retina are not present, again, it's a different condition that could affect that part of the retina. And the macula is the Part of the retina that controls our fine vision for driving or reading or threading a needle or anything else that, that requires us to see in fine detail. So symptoms can again occur from anything uh, affecting that part of the retina without it being age-related macular degeneration, and that would be a blurring or loss of central vision. In terms of genetics, that there is a genetic component to it. It's, it's not as strong of an association as inherited diseases such as cystic fibrosis, for instance, where if, if both parents have a copy that one in four children could, could have this condition. Um, but uh, family history does increase the risk by about, um, about 50% that you could, you could have the condition. Uh, well, so thank you. And we're going to be breaking the breaking the disease down into some component parts. And for you know, for the clinician, you may have some different words, but in the patient community, we'll be talking about the, what what we might refer to as wet and dry forms of the disease. And one of the most frequent topics we have is about that wet form. So so let's start with a question that we have from Sandy from Florida who'd like to know if patients ever see reversal of symptoms after receiving the treatment for wet macular degeneration? Um, so yes, that, that's a very good question. Um, I, when we're getting into these questions on, on treatment of wet macular degeneration, I, I think the other important thing to frame is um, just what to expect with treatment. So this question gets a bit to that, and I'll expound on it a bit further. And um, the, the treatments that we have now are dramatically better than anything we had 10 years ago. So that's the, the most important thing. Um, and uh, we do need to think of it as a, a treatment, though, and not a cure. So um, the fact that repeated treatments, which are injections, are needed doesn't mean that things are going badly. That's, that's par for the course. Um, just as someone with diabetes needs to take insulin to keep the blood sugar under control, with wet macular degeneration, often continued injections are needed. In terms of treatment, um, about one in three patients in, in the landmark studies uh, looking at these medications saw improvement in vision. And that was just defined as reading on the eye chart that improved more than, than three lines on the eye chart in the doctor's office. So about one in three got 
better, a, a greater number had improvement otherwise. Um, there can be improvement in symptoms such as distortion as well, uh, which are common with a condition. Um, but a, a, a larger number of patients just don't show any further decline. So a small number do see improvement, or not even small, but a, a sizable minority see improvement. Um, but if, if no improvement's happening, it, it still means that the treatment could be working as expected. Well, uh, that gets into a, a conversation about about the course of treatment and the maintenance of those injections. injections. James from Illinois, who, uh, who just got started on Lucentis, had a question about the, the protocols that the, that the eye care provider is using and was asking about monthly doses versus the as-needed. So that maybe the doctor just gives an injection anytime they feel that the patient uh, looks like they would benefit from one. So, so what does that mean, and, and what does the research out there tell us about that, that monthly dosing or what might be called PRN dosing, which is the, the physician's way of describing the as-needed? Right. So um, the idea behind monthly dosing to begin with came from the fact that uh, early phase trials in uh, humans as well as experiments in animals, and this was for ranibizumab or Lucentis initially, which was the first of these to be approved for, for use in the eye, um, or the first very effective one, um, last about a month in the eye. So um, at the beginning of the, the trials, they were called marina and anchor. All of our trials in ophthalmology tend to have um, acronyms that are um, somewhat related to each other. Um, the idea was to see what the best case scenario was for these treatments. So in the original trials um, that lasted for two years, patients were treated every single month, regardless of what was going on with the retina, for a two-year period. Now, when we try to put this into practice, um, for a number of reasons, uh, that can become difficult. Either it's it's inconvenient to come in that often. Um, it's not pleasant to get these injections, though um, most people are happy to get them if they're helping. Um, but, but for a number of reasons, we've, we've tried to decrease the treatment burden that's there. And the, the very first thing that was tried was they were given every three months, again, regardless of what was going on with the retina. And uh, in that experiment, things really didn't go well. Patients had a, a greater decline in vision if they were just given every three months. So the, the next thing that was tried, and many of us had been doing this in our practice anyway, um, was to look at treating when we saw evidence that there was active leaking from blood vessels on the types of pictures that we do in the office. And um, we all thought this was working well, and then it was actually validated in a, another clinical trial um, that at least very close um, that treating as needed uh, when we saw disease activity was as good as treating every month. Um, that still requires monthly or close to monthly visits, um, but not necessarily an injection on every single visit. The average patient undergoing treatment like this is on an as-needed basis, rather than getting one every month, ends up getting about uh, 
eight um, injections a year. So that's still quite a few. And again, it, some people need two or three. Some people still need one every month. But treating it that way does seem to be as effective. Well, along that theme, uh, Bernice from California is wondering you know, where we're talking about uh, you mentioned Lucentis, but there's a there's a group of anti-VEGF treatments, so Lucentis, Ilea, Avastin. Um, how how do these differ from one another? And and I, I know that some of those differences are along the are along the the timing of the dosing. Right. So uh, the most important thing about all of these is that they are all very very effective. Um, th- the differences between them require studies with with thousands of patients to see little differences. So um, they are all highly effective. At a um, molecular level, they can be somewhat different. So the most similar to each other are Lucentis and Avastin, which are made by the same company. Um, Avastin is actually a colon cancer drug that's not approved by the FDA for use in the eye, um, but it was the first in this class of medications that that was around. Um, the, the company, that Genentech, that makes this modified things a little bit for use in the eye, and that was the drug Lucentis, which was used in the clinical trials, and it was through the clinical trials that it gained approval. Um, we have data on the comparison between those from a clinical study called CAT, which was the comparative anti-VEGF treatment trial. So anti-VEGF, again, is these class of medicines. VEGF is a molecule in, in the body and in the, the, the eye that induces new blood vessel growth. Um, so in this study, there, there was no significant difference seen when Avastin or Lucentis was given every month. Um, it wasn't clear that Avastin was as good or maybe not quite as good when it was um, given as an as-needed regimen. Um, I think for most patients, it's probably similar, but it's it's a little bit more of a gray area there. Um, ILEA is the newest of these medicines, and it, it again, blocks that same factor. Um, It was compared in a trial to uh, Lucentis, and it was compared to Lucentis given every month, and then different regimens with uh, the ILEA, so either given every month or given three doses and then given every eight weeks. And those results also seem to be fairly equivalent. Um, ILEA does have a longer half-life, meaning it does last a little bit longer in the eye. The the eight-week treatment schedule isn't necessarily the best for every patient. So if there's a lot of fluid at the four-week point, um, in my view, it's better to, to treat it. And if, if we look at the number of treatments per year um, with an as-needed Lucentis regimen versus the every uh, eight weeks after initial three weeks, we still end up with that around eight injections a year. So uh, there are small differences. They all work quite well. We're certainly glad to have each of them. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to the... Let's move on to the next question. Uh, Marilyn from New Hampshire is concerned about, in her case, some scar tissue that's forming after injection. And 
she's asking, you know, she's asking how how to balance those risks that come with those medications versus the benefit of the medications. And so how what are the side effects that we might see from from repeated injections? Can we have too many injections and you know how how do we manage our expectations about what's going to happen with these drugs? Right. So again differentiating types of scar tissue I think will will help um answer this question. My impression from, from how she's worded the question is that the perhaps the site of an injection is becoming a little more uncomfortable. Um, some patients do note that other patients can have repeated injections, and now that we've had these treatments for seven or eight years, some patients have gotten 50, 60 more injections and um, don't seem to have more problem with further injections. There's also scar tissue that can form um, underneath and affecting the retina. Um, that these treatments do nothing but decrease the incidence of that scar tissue. So left untreated, the scar tissue that can steal vision away um, will increase without treatments. Um, in terms of, of how effective they are, um, again, over a two-year period, about 90% of people keep their vision, um, and about a third of people get some improvement. Uh, this is the best data we have is actually treating frequently. So um, every month or whenever we see the littlest bit of fluid. Uh, the data that we have going out more than two years, so um, we have some data out to seven years, be, becomes less clear just because uh, fewer patients that were well studied were followed out that, that long. Um, what What we see at seven years is that about 40% of people continue to do very well. About 30% of people become legally blind, but the people who did well actually had far more injections than the ones that didn't do well. And it's, it's not clear if that's because more frequent um, injections are what made the difference or if the patients that didn't do well just stopped getting the injections because it wouldn't felt uh, it was felt they wouldn't be helpful anymore. Um, the only concern about frequent injections that's been raised is that there's maybe an increased risk of atrophy or loss of retinal tissue, which can also uh, lead to some decreased vision with these treatments. And I, I think the jury is still out on whether that's a real concern or not. Um, but even if it is a real concern, the alternative, which is not treating, tends to, to take vision away faster. Um, so really, more treatments seem to be better. Um, there are the rare complications, such as infection in the eye, retinal detachment, that also have to be a consideration. But by far, people do, do better with continued treatments. I'm sure some specifics always a conversation to have with you with with your own eye care provider. Right. Well, I want to remind everyone that you can push star three at any time to leave a leave a question on the on the line, and we'll we'll address it as we've been addressing some of the others that have been coming in. So let's complement what we've been talking about so far by moving on to the dry form of the disease. And this is the more common form. It's perhaps affecting as many as 9 million people in the U.S. 
you know, the wet form is a bit more rare, uh, certainly severe, but, you know, 2 million people, so that's a sense of scale. But we had a question from Carol from Ohio who says that she has soft drusen in both eyes and been, has been warned about that dry AMV turning into wet in the future. Uh, how long How long does that take? And, you know, how long... Uh, is there a specific time frame that people should be concerned about? Right. So a lot of this has to do with the individual appearance of that person's eye. And if we look at all of the risk factors for vision loss for macular degeneration, if you look at smoking, which is clearly a risk factor, genetics, um, age is obviously a risk factor. By far the, the most important risk factor is, is the appearance of the retina. Um, the other important thing to know is that most patients who have drusen um, never end up with vision loss. Uh, it's because so many people have the condition, though, there are a lot of people that have the, the, the forms of it, either advanced dry macular degeneration or wet macular degeneration that, that do lead to vision loss. Um, there was a stu- uh, NIH-sponsored study called the Age-Related Eye, D- Eye Disease Study, or AREDS, and people will see this on some of the eye vitamins, the, those, those letters, and that's, that's what it stands for. And from that, looking at patients at the beginning of the study and then seeing who developed either vision loss from dry macular degeneration or... Uh, who developed wet macular degeneration, it was based on whether there were pigment changes uh, in the retina and whether there were what we would consider to be large drusen. So we, we based the size of drusen based on how they look on our exam. And that's something that, that your eye doctor should be able to tell you. They should be able to look in the eye and say, this is what I see. And um, the scale is called the A-RED simple scale for risk. And and that can range anywhere from a 1% risk over five years of getting macular degeneration to a 50% or greater risk based on how the back of the eye looks. So that's a very important thing to talk to your your, uh, eye care provider about. Well, I want to take a moment. I, certainly that ARID simple scale for risk may be something that may be a little hard for people to rem, to remember. We will have a large print transcript of this conversation and all our other chats available. Give us a week or so. If you call in, we'd be happy to send that out to you as well as post it on our website. Uh, one of the questions that came in from uh, two people, from uh, both from California, Ruth and Charlene, were asking about asking a question about risk. But in this case, they have they have AMD in one eye, and we're asking about the risk of it progressing to the other healthy eye. So, what what can you tell them about the chances of that happening over time? So, again, having wet macular degeneration in one eye is a risk factor that it will increase the risk of getting it in the other eye. Um, but still, the most important factor is what that other eye looks like. Um, so the the increase in risk from having it in one eye is is about a twofold change. So if if the other eye really does not look that affected, the the risk remains quite low. However, if there are changes that would put you further along in that simple scale, um, it 
the risk could be significant. So that's certainly important to be watched more closely, uh, at least every six months, seeing someone to make sure that looking at that eye to make sure wet macular degeneration um, isn't developing. And again, asking asking your eye care provider what that other eye looks like. Is it is it does it look similar to the other one before it got wet or does it really look much milder? So hinted here at uh, at monitoring the progression of the disease and uh, we can certainly do that at home. So Joan from Florida is asking if I notice distortion on my Amsler grid, uh, you know, what what does that mean? Uh, you know, is 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 all hope lost then? I think we've started to get into the treatments, but maybe the question is, you know, what do you do when you do notice changes in an Amsler grid? And uh, and and are there are the what are there other technologies beyond the Amsler grid that we can use for at home monitoring of the disease? Right. So there there are a number of ways to monitor things in between visits. Um, and some type of monitoring should be definitely done. We're, we're still trying to figure out what the best thing is to tell patients. Um, but with, with any type of monitoring, and I'll, I'll go through some of the older and newer options, the most important thing is if there's a change to be seen quickly. And quickly doesn't mean at 4 in the morning if you notice it at 12 at night. Um, we usually say about uh, within a week, um, and that's um, if we catch people with a week within a week of developing wet macular degeneration, which that would be one concern with with distortion on the grid, um, earlier treatments better. We have great evidence that that people do much better the earlier we can we can treat things. Um, distortion can be caused by a number of things. The, the most concerning thing would be wet macular degeneration, but even a progression of this material, the drusen under the retina can lead to these symptoms. And we, we wouldn't do anything differently if drusen were causing the symptoms because we don't have treatment for drusen per se, but it's very important to make sure that it's not wet macular degeneration that's developed, which we do have very effective treatments for. So in addition to the Amsler grid, which is often... Um, recommended and for for those who don't know what it is it's, it's it looks like a piece of graph paper that you look at and see if any lines are missing or bent or twisted and you look with each eye separately sometimes the the Ansley grid itself either misses things or can find things that aren't really there i i personally don't recommend it that often. Um, I find some people drive themselves crazy looking at it, but I, I do recommend just that um, people look with one eye separately and either read or look at a picture they're used to looking at or a tile floor and just see if anything looks different. Um, but kind of some more uh, newer technologies that are coming out that have been shown effective. There is a home monitoring device uh, called 4C, F-O-R-S-E-E. -E. It was actually validated in a clinical trial to be effective to pick up wet macular degeneration sooner. So that's one other thing that, that could be uh, discussed with, with your doctors to see if if they know more about that or if they um, if that's available through them. Um, it, it doesn't work for everyone. Some patients 
their eyes are such that they can't use it, but it, it may pick things up earlier and lead to better outcomes. Okay, well, we're going to have to, you know, time is moving on, so let's pivot over. To the, we have so many questions that come in about nutrition and about uh, about all the vitamin supplements. As an example, Melanie from Colorado asking, just that simplest question, how important are the eye vitamins, and do you need to take a name brand? So what what can you tell us about the role of supplementation in preservation of vision? Right, so again, our, our the best data we have on this comes from the ARED study. So um, patients in this study that, that had drusen and various degrees of drusen were either given supplements or not. And we'll get into which supplements we recommend, um, but they're... They were only effective in, in patients that had a large number of these drusens. So even the earliest stages of macular degeneration, there wasn't any benefit from any vitamin supplements. Um, part of that is that they're they're not actually designed to improve vision, so taking them won't make your vision better. Um, they don't slow down the accumulation of this drusen material or the progression of dry macular degeneration either, um, but they seem to decrease the risk of developing wet macular degeneration. And it, it does so by about 25%. So if we go back to that, the simple scale, um, and if you're at the end of the spectrum where the risk is about 1% and decreasing that to slightly less than 1%, it's, it's maybe not so important to be taking them. Um, however, if you're at the other end of the spectrum where the, the risk is at 50% or greater, then that's, that's a significant change in um, the amount of vision loss that's, that's likely by taking these supplements. Um, the original study looked at a combination of beta-carotene, which is a form of vitamin A, and then vitamin C, E, zinc, and coppers there to prevent problems from uh, lack of absorption of copper from zinc. Um, and, and that was the, the original formulation. So for patients with at least intermediate dry macular degeneration, there's a benefit from taking those supplements. For people over the age of 50 or younger than 50 that don't have the actual disease and don't have at least that stage of the disease, there's, there's no proven benefit to, to any of these. Um, so that was the original formulation. And a later study that was called AREDS-2, the addition of two other uh, carotenoids called lutein and zeaxanthine, which are in, in high levels in green leafy vegetables, were also added to that or used rather than the, the other form of vitamin A, the beta-carotene. Um, there was no added benefit of taking them both together, and the lutein and zeaxanthine seemed to do at least as well as the beta-carotene, maybe with some, some fewer side effects. Um, one concern with beta-carotene, especially in patients who are current smokers and perhaps in people who used to smoke, is that there is a slightly increased risk of lung cancer with this. So that's one important point with the supplements is if you smoke, you should not have the beta-carotene in the supplements. The other thing looked at in... 
the AREDS2 study, and I think this gets to a, another question that someone had sent in, was fish oil. Um, and, and there was some evidence from um, some dietary studies just asking people with or without the disease what they ate that fish oil might be helpful, but it actually didn't prove to be helpful when it when it was given in, in pill form in this study. So the they can be effective um, by reducing the risk of wet macular degeneration, but the only ones we have evidence for that exact formula in the, that was in the study. And patients come in kind of bewildered about all the, the different choices that they have. Um, what I tend to do is print up the, uh, the version of what was actually used in the study, and I, I tell them, I, I know that Preservision, the AREDS2 formula that Balsh and Lowe makes, is what was tested in the study. Um, and some people say, well, do I have to get these? And I say, no, you don't have to get these, but you have to get something that has these ingredients in it. So if you find another company that has exactly this and these amounts, that's fine. If it's something different, well, it may be effective, but we just don't know. It hasn't been looked at. We, for anyone anyone curious, we'd be happy to share with you that, that formulary for the ARIDS-2 vitamins. There was a news article out, a uh, academic publication a little while, a couple months ago, saying that uh, you do need to be careful, that there's some, some of the ARIDS vitamins that even though the label says ARIDS, it may not have exactly that ARIDS formulation in them. So I, I, I think... Uh, Definitely check the label, and we'd be happy to help you give something to compare against. Um, you, I, you mentioned. I, I think the the other one. thing that's that's helpful is bring what you're taking in with you to your appointments, because I'll I'll also have people come in and they say, "Oh, is this okay?" And just having that bottle there with the ingredients makes it so much easier to know what you actually are taking. Wonderful advice. So we we do get just tons and tons and tons of questions about uh, about other supplements and some of the things you you covered a bit. But maybe could could we ask a question? I, I think you've identified identified what we know about supplementations for AMD specifically. But are there nutrients or supplements or general dietary practices that would be generally beneficial for just overall eye health as opposed specifically for macular degenerations? Right. So we actually don't have a tremendous amount of data on this. And a, a number of supplements are uh, recommended again, just for people over fifty, some of the companies recommend certain supplements but but we don't have great evidence for this, and the vast majority of the things that are good for the eye can uh, can be obtained in sufficient amounts just with a, a well balanced diet so we think occasional fish and unless there's a reason because of medication uh, interactions such as Coumadin that you can't have green leafy vegetables. Most of these things that are good for general eye health are, are uh, plenty abundant in, in green leafy vegetables such as kale or spinach, um, collards, mustard greens, things like that. So that's, that's really the only recommendations we have for general eye health. Well, we have a always have a, a group of questions coming in about about clinical trials that are going on, and uh, one of them is one that's near and dear to to our heart. There was a 
there was a, a report about the possibility of L-DOPA being useful for macular degenerations. Now, that, that was a, a study that was published from a review of medical records, and it hasn't gone into clinical trials yet. But uh, if there's anything you'd like to say about, about that L-DOPA study, we'd love to hear it. But in general, uh, what, what's the role of a clinical trial, and how does a patient get into a clinical trial or find out about them? Right. So in, in terms of the, the L-DOPA study, the, the, what, what was done there was, was very interesting and very exciting. Um, but always before we actually begin treating patients with anything, we, we like to do well-controlled trials where some patients are getting medicine and, and others aren't, um, or some patients are getting one medicine and some patients are getting a different medicine to, to know, number one, whether it's effective, um, and number two, that we're not doing harm by any of these things. So um, clinical trials are, have really been critical to all of the current treatments that we have now, and they'll continue to be critical as, as new treatments are developed. And there, there are a number of things in, in the pipeline that if, if we have time for, we can, we can go through some, what some of these are. Uh, the first maybe, step... Maybe give to, us an example of one or two if you have time. Uh, yeah, well, let, let me get just first to how to get into sure. it. And the, the very first thing is to just see an eye doctor... Um, see exactly what you have because many many of these trials it it depends on exactly what version of the condition that you have so um, if if we know what you have you can either go to an academic center or um, many uh, private practice retina groups as well are involved in some of these later stage clinical trials so there are plenty of ways to to get into some of them. Um, I, I think the very next thing on the horizon, it's, it's somewhat lower hanging fruit, is for wet macular degeneration, which is just having things that last longer. Um, so rather than needing this monthly or as needed, but potentially as often as every month, um, we may have some treatments soon. And there are some phase three medicines that, that may last as long as three months. Um, there's another uh, implantable device that can be refilled with drug that's in an earlier stage trial that, that could also give a much longer duration of action. So that's that's exciting that even if the final outcome isn't better, that we might be able to see patients every three or six or months or even longer um, rather than monthly with monthly treatments. Um, wet macular degeneration is caused by growth of, of blood vessels that shouldn't be growing where they should. And many of the other new treatments for wet macular degeneration focus on other factors. So VEGF, which is what all of the current medicines um, target, is just one, one part of why abnormal blood vessels grow. So there's other phase th three trials that target uh, platelet-derived growth factor, which is another important factor that could potentially, in addition to the current treatments, give better results. Um, turning to the dry side of things, there's a medicine that 
uh, modulates the part of the immune system that's also injected into the eye. It's called lampalizumab that's in a phase three or final stage trial that may slow down the progression of geographic atrophy, which is the loss of retinal tissue that causes loss of vision and advanced dry macular degeneration. And that's an ongoing trial. One of the very exciting things, but really in its infancy, that I often get asked about as well are, are about stem cells. Um, and stem cells now are being used not to replace the retinal cells themselves. So the retina is the light-sensitive layer that actually does the seeing, but one of the other tissues affected in, in macular degeneration is the retinal pigment epithelial cells, which are underneath the retina, and they support and keep the retina healthy. So they both need to be working well for the retina to work, and those cells are actually affected likely sooner than the retinal cells in macular degeneration. So those could possibly be replaced after they've, they've died. Um, likely, if this does work, we'll just see slowing down the process. But if we look at the 5, 10, 15-year horizon, there's, I think, some hope that some of this, these treatments could be restorative as well. Well, we're moving on. Uh, we've talked a fair amount about medicine and nutrition behavior. We just concluded about clinical trials. Uh, there's certainly some resources like clinicaltrials.gov that are online that can help you find out about what clinical trials might be recruiting in, in your area. Uh, if you call into Bright Focus, we'd be happy to explain some of those, uh, how to navigate that website should you need that help. But there's a great question that came from Barry from Maryland, and Barry is saying that the, the, the mindset with the majority of patients who are diagnosed with age-related macular degeneration is that they've been told that nothing more can be done beyond those medicines and the things we've talked about today. And he, he, he says he's pleased to say that, you know, in his life he's found wonderful options that are available for so that people can experience enhanced vision with new technology or, or, or other options and just have a, a better quality of life outside of modifying the actual disease. And so uh, he's asking about, you know, how can we be more proactive in informing patients that options, uh, that these options exist. So, but, uh, you know, what I'm hearing in Barry's question are some references to, to what we might call low vision services. And certainly we've, we've featured experts in that field on these chats. But Dr. Winnicott, you know, how does low vision therapy feature into the advice that you give patients? Yeah, I, I think it's really critical. And I practicing in the D.C. area, we, we often see patients who have, have gone to not one other but several other other doctors. And I'm, I'm always disheartened when, when someone comes in and is told, um, well, they told me there was nothing else they could do because that's, that is far from the truth. Um, it's true that I may not be able to do anything to make the retina work better, but that doesn't mean that there's not something that can't make people see and function better. So um, going to a low vision specialist is, is a critical step in the door to really learn about the different things. They have a tremendous amount of experience with um, both from their training and just, you know, they pick up tips that other people Patients have told them that that work for them. So, 
um, really just learning the the best way to get the most out of the vision, either from magnifiers or their new new technologies with text recognition that will read the words back to you. For instance, be in the grocery store and you could shine it at it and it whispers in your ear the price or, or what the label says. So, um, you know, losing vision from macular degeneration doesn't doesn't have to be the end of your life and it, it doesn't even have to be the end of what you can do to see. There are many options out there. Um, I I find that one of the most important things that we can do for for patients. And low vision also is not just for people who are legally blind. It's for anyone whose vision is is less than perfect from from any eye disease. Um, a, a lot can be done to improve things. It, it shouldn't be. I think a, a lot of ways the the name low vision is is an unfortunate name. Um, it doesn't it, it doesn't have to be thought of that way. It's it's I I tell my patients it's like seeing a physical therapist that if your surgeon gives you a knee replacement, you need to learn how to use that knee again, um, and the physical therapist can can help you do that. And so I, I, I heard in that last statement that uh, perhaps the way to find out about low vision services in your community would be from a referral through through the through your through your eye care provider. Is that uh, would you? Is that I, how I, I think that's one of the easiest ways. I think also um, you can just either online, either yourself or have someone help you. You can search for one. Um, I think you could even find it in in the phone book. So, but that the term is low vision. Sure. Well, and I, you know, I'd like to make the comment that, you know, this is part of the Bright Focus mission to to build awareness about different services that exist. And so some of the technologies that you described, uh, we have quite an extensive body of information on our own website. And of course, if you'd you know, rather not communicate through a computer. You know, many people prefer just to pick up the phone. You can always call us at 1-800-437-2423. Well, unfortunately, that's about as much time as we have today. In fact, we may have gone a little bit over, but before we conclude, we always ask one poll question to just make sure we're on the right track for what people need, uh, all the people who have taken an hour out of their day to to, to listen to, to what we have to say and what we have to offer. So overall, how would you rate this telephone chat today? And so if you found the chat helpful, I'd please take a moment to press 1 on your telephone. And if you found the chat only somewhat helpful, you know, please press 2. If you didn't find it helpful at all, please press 3. And if you have all sorts of mean things to say about me, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know please don't. The, um, but it is about all the time we have to answer uh, your questions today. And so if you, while you're completing that poll, it's a one for helpful, two for somewhat helpful, and three for not helpful at all. Um, we hope that you've found it helpful and inspiring, but thank you certainly to, to Dr. Adam Winnick from the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Clinic for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you to everyone who joined on the call and asked all these questions. Within about a week, we'll post a recording and a transcript of the call on our website. You can also listen to and download our past chats on iTunes or SoundCloud. 
Our next chat uh, will have the topic of tips for maximizing doctor visits, and that will be on February 24th. And we encourage anyone to register now and submit questions in advance. And so if you are registered for this call, we'll also be sending you a reminder email uh, about, the, about the next call. So if you stay on the line when this call concludes, you can leave a message to register for that, for that February chat. You can request copies of the transcripts I mentioned or uh, for yourself or share with anyone who might be interested. And again, you can always call us here at Bright Focus at 1-800-437-2422. That's 1-800-437-2423. And our website always has these resources. That's www.brightfocus.org. So again, thank you to Dr. Adam Winnick for uh, taking the time to talk to us today, and thank you for everyone who joined the call. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.